0: Go ahead and begin in Genesis chapter 3. So we began with Genesis 1 and 2, which taught us that God is a king, creation is his kingdom, the king made himself a kingdom to rule over, to inhabit. And we humans, he made to be his under kings, very different than the pagan versions of the creation of man. Uh, They saw man as slaves to the gods to meet their needs. But in Genesis, we find that man was created to partner with God in the rulership and care of the creation. And so we saw this beautiful mission. Man was given a commission in Genesis 1.28 to, uh, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the different parts of creation. They were to work and keep the garden. And we saw that God was in the garden. It's described like a temple. And so they have this priestly mission to take God's garden and his, his ruling presence and, and grow it outward. Um, but this beautiful mission was devastated in part two with rebellion. So if you look at your chart, you will see creation is the beginning of the V. And then instantly there's a, it goes downhill. That's where rebellion begins and exile happens after the rebellion. So Adam and Eve, we learned last week that they desired in their eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they desired to be like god which when we look more carefully does not mean to take his characteristics and display them it meant they wanted to be an elohim the hebrew word for god they wanted to be a judge a um, king a prince a ruler that's what elohim means it's a lawmaker they wanted to be their own lawmakers knowing or in other words determining what is good and evil so it was this ambitious attempt towards autonomy this we don't want to be under kings serving with god we want to be our own kings, serving apart from god so there's this rebellion this declaration of independence and so we see heaven and earth god's realm and man's realm divorce and god allows the humans to have their own kingdom and from that moment on we see it go horribly south now The comfort I find in it, though, is we often have this we imagine this God who's angry and he turns his back on them, says, fine, whatever. And he curses the earth as a result and says, deal with it. But that's not what we see when we look at Genesis 3 carefully. We see actually the minute sin enters the world, God isn't running and saying, I can't handle this. I can't be in the presence of sin. We see him actually hunting Adam down and saying, Adam, where are you? What happened to our relationship? And he offers Adam opportunities for restoration and says, hey, what did you do? And instead of taking the father's advice And coming back into restoration, Adam begins to make excuses and continues to run and hide. And so very interestingly, we see that God has always wanted to work this out, even despite Adam's sin. But the humans continue to rebel. And as a result of their rebellion, they are exiled from the garden. They are kicked out. Now, again... The curses come with it. The curses are not God saying, fine, I will get even with you. It's not retaliation. It's not retribution. These are natural byproducts to humans ruling the world apart from God's help and power. Natural byproducts. So we need not see a God punishing us already, but allowing us to punish ourselves, if you will. So in Genesis 3, I want us to now summarize the curses that are happening, and we will get into the... Restoration phase of the narrative. So in Genesis 3, verse 14, we read the first curse. God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And then you go down to verse 17. To Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And then it continues to get worse. Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis 4. And in verse 11 of Genesis 4, we read this. God speaking to Cain. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Then we jump towards chapter 5. And in verse 29, we'll start in 28. In 528, we see the fourth curse appear, the fourth word at least. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. And then finally, if you will, this is past the flood now. The flood happens. Noah is repopulating the earth with his children. In chapter 9, we see Genesis 9. You may remember this episode in verse 25. Noah, like Adam, rebelled. Like Adam, it involved fruit of some sort of vegetation. Uh, Adam's involved the tree. Noah's involved the grapevine. Uh, like Adam, Noah is naked. And so we see an exact repeat of what happened in the garden. Noah passes out, gets drunk. Uh, Once again, he doesn't have dominion over the earth. It has dominion over him. He's allowed it to rule him. Our definition of sin in this narrative so far. And so Noah has sinned. Um, His sons see what has happened. They want to cover him up. But Ham is... The one who makes fun of his father. If you want to modernize it, he takes an Instagram picture of his father and his dad wakes up angry at how many people have liked it. And so this is what he says. He wakes up. Noah wakes up. Verse 25. He said, cursed. There's our fifth use of the word cursed. Cursed be Canaan. That's Ham's son. A servant of servants shall he be to his brother's So five times we read this word cursed, which is a very different way of telling the story because prior in chapter one, it was it was good. God saw it was good. It was good. It was good. And then at the end, it was very good. We see that it's a very good thing that he's done. And then he blesses his creation and he speaks to the humans. He says he blesses them and gives them a mission. But after the rebellion and the exile from Eden, We see that curses abound upon the earth. And so we see right off the bat two very differences in the rulerships between God and man. God is the author of goodness and blessing and where he rules those things reside. Man is the author of curse and murder and division and strife and darkness and rebellion and everything else that we've seen leading up to the flood and thereafter to our present day. So five times the word curse pops up, which is very interesting. Now that we go to Genesis 12, so if you will go to Genesis 12 and you're going to see why this is important. So the question is, wow, what happens when man rules the world? And we say it's awful. It is awful. And it's, it's cursed everywhere. And then the flood tries to reconstruct this. It once again goes into chaos under Noah and his sons. And then it climaxes at the Tower of Babel, where the rebels make their ultimate statement of rebellion. And they make uh, a tower, which is designed to be at the top. It's supposed to be a temple. And they are basically trying to replace God with their own man-made thing. And they are doing everything God told them not to do. Uh, Fill the earth and multiply. Well, they are consolidating in one place. And it's all about us. Let us make a name for ourselves. And we see that ultimate rebellion happen there. And so in the chaos and in the aftermath of the Tower of Babel, we come to Genesis 12, which the long-awaited answer to our problem is finally hinted at. So in the middle of these five curses, we read this. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make a great nation of you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you count the many times that God said bless? There's five of them. Very willful reversal here of the curse that had entered the earth. God says, here's the answer. And it's in Abraham and the people that I will bring out of him and the land that they will take. That will be where the source of blessing will return to the world. Every single curse will be flipped over in these people. And the one use of curse here is simply a clear statement. If you want to be with the blessings, join these people. And if you want to stay in a cursed world, don't join these people. That's the bottom line. So we see here this man named Abram, who we know becomes Abraham, who becomes a father of 12 sons eventually. And these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. and The 12 tribes of Israel become a mighty nation and kingdom. This is the promise that God has said. Like, I have chosen this people that through Abraham and his people, I will bless the cursed earth. So there is a promise in our narrative that though the creation was good and the rebellion, the conflict happened. Now there's a promise that he's going to resolve the issue. The resolution will come. He is going to recreate what sin is decreating. So you're going to notice on our chart that we are in the middle of the decreation. We are on the decline and the world is going to get worse and worse and worse up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and and it still is in many ways getting worse and worse and worse, but I will mention that in a minute, uh, on the way we've seen now Abraham. So God calls Abraham and says, okay, yes, the decreation and rebellions happening, but I have a plan. And while the rebellion is continuing, I am going to choose a remnant of all who will to be the difference makers They're going to go a different direction while the world is being decreated. I'm going to recreate a new people here and show the blessings of what happens when men let God be king and them be under kings. So we then go to Exodus where we see this beginning to take shape promise made is beginning to become fulfilled when Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt. And this is much like uh, a picture of the rebellion in the world. But God comes and delivers them. And through mighty acts, Moses leads them. And as they're on their way to the promised land, leaving Egypt, he gives them this in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, though that was his poetic allusion to the Exodus deliverance. I put you on my wings and I carried you out. Now, verse five, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the promise. So that there is, in many ways, a new Adam being born in Israel. He's giving them that priestly mission once again to go to the world and to represent God to them because of the rebellion. There is now a middleman. And Israel is God's choice to be that middleman. Now, notice the conditions, however, if you obey my voice and you keep my covenant. Um, these commands that he will give them in chapter, we you know, as the Ten Commandments, these are not necessarily it's not like God was saying, this is how you get to heaven. Here's a ladder. Try to climb it. And let the rest of the world follow you, Israel. It would seem to me that he's giving them a mission. You're my priest to the world. And if you want to be successful priests and not fall on the wayside like Adam did, then you're going to keep these conditions these commandments are what it looks like to be a nation under the rulership of God. If He is king, this is how you're going to behave. And so it is a law of the land. The king is giving them commands, and he's forming a nation of priests through this. So, to the extent that they keep His law, the world will be blessed. That's what we see happening here. Um, ironically, maybe not ironic, maybe intentional, it's a suggestion. There are 10 commandments. The Hebrew actually isn't commandments. The Hebrew is the 10 words of God. So he speaks 10 laws into existence. And in Genesis one, you will read the phrase, um, God said 10 times. And it may, there's an idea that God is really recreating his creative act with Israel. And he's speaking and he's bringing them into being. And, um, That'll be interesting. Here's his new people, his new creation, his new Adam. And then he builds the tabernacle with Moses. And the tabernacle is erected on uh, seven episodes in Exodus. There are seven specific times when you read this phrase. If you'll go to Exodus chapter 30. Well, we'll start with 11, 30, 11. You see this phrase, the Lord said to Moses, then you jump to verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, that formula, the Lord said in the construction of the tabernacle, that formula is said seven times. So basically, every time it says that the Lord said to Moses, he's giving him an episode of this is how you create the tabernacle. And what we have is seven frames of the creation of the tabernacle, just like the seven days of the creation of the world. We have here again in this Exodus movement, God delivering this people to bless the cursed earth with by making a nation of priests and creating them with 10 laws and now making a tabernacle in which he will live in with seven creation phases. This is him saying, look, Eden is long gone because of the rebellion, but I am restarting this through Israel and I will once again live with them and walk with them in this tabernacle which is like a creation of the cosmos in miniature and there i will be with the people and this nation because i'm in their presence and i am ruling over them as i was supposed to over adam they will go out into the world and the cursed earth will be blessed that's the program that's the plan so we jump all the way forward through many years of history we go up to second samuel chapter seven And Israel has finally gone to the promised land, which the Bible describes as being very fruitful, much like Eden. And in fact, in Genesis 13, it makes that direct reference. It says that the land, when Abraham and Lot looked at the land, they said it was like the garden of God. So they move into a new land, which is supposed to be as fruitful as Eden if they obey God. And they eventually become that nation David becomes the king of Israel, and God makes a covenant with David. So let's look at what this is. We'll begin in verse 9. 2 Samuel 7, 9. David, I've been with you, God speaking to David, wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed. No more interesting. He's going to plant them almost like God sees them as a garden. And Paul, of course, tells the church to bear fruit. So just footnote for whatever it's worth. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, here's the key. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. Pause there at verse 12. So David wanted to make God a temple. But now God turns to David and says, David, you're not going to build a temple for me. Your son will build a temple for me. But what I will do, David, is I will make you a house. There's a play on words here because often the temple's called the house of God. David wanted to make God a house. Now God turns around and says, David, I'm going to make you a house. And so this is the house he's going to make. David meant house like temple. God means house like dynasty. I'm going to make you a kingship that isn't going to end. It's going to be a house that never falls. So I'm going to make you a house, David. Verse 12. and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And you shall, in and, and, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that is that word forever three times. What does he do? He comes to David and says, David... I am giving you a throne and a kingdom and your sons will rule this kingdom and sit on this throne forever. Yes, I may have to discipline them. And this is a little forewarning because we're going to see this in a second. That right now, we don't necessarily see David's son. Well, in the days of Jesus, we don't see David's son ruling on the throne. And Israel was going through a hard time. What the heck? God broke his promise. Why is David not ruling on the throne? Um, But he says here, look, I might have to discipline you, but I will not depart from you. There's this promise of there may be this huge delay, but forever will be fulfilled. It will be restored to you. So David's promise, this eternal throne, this eternal kingdom, his son's ruling over it. And you may have noticed in some of the wording, it kind of interplays between your descendants to A certain descendant he's talking about. Now in context, this descendant is Solomon, who's going to be his son. He's going to build the house and he's going to make the kingdom great. But Christians and the church has always looked back at this and said, there may be more to that. That there is one descendant that is going to be the one to rule on David's throne forever. And of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But that would be Jesus. So here's the promise. But then we come to very dark days. And if you want to go to 2 Kings 17, go ahead. Otherwise, it's a very simple point we're going to make out of it so you can listen. 2 Kings 17, David's sons are ruling on the throne, ruling on the throne. And then one day, the exile happens. The kingdom is broken. David's sons are no longer on the throne. Israel is scattered out of the land, much like Adam Lost, He rebelled and was exiled from Eden. Israel rebels and will be exiled from their Eden, from their land. The reason this happened, 2 Kings 17, verse 7. This occurred, the exile, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel and their, uh, they they had practiced. So they did the things the other nations did. Here God calls them to be a nation of priests, to have a mission, uh, to represent him to the rest of the world. And rather than representing him to the rest of the world, they actually just adopt the gods of the rest of the world and don't represent them before God. So there's no middleman right now playing between the nations and God. They're not doing a good job at connecting the two because Israel decides to not follow their king and follow the other kings of the world and do what they do. The commandments are broken. That's what It means when it says that they sinned, they did what Adam did, they rebelled against their king, they decided to play autonomy, we will be our own kings, we will rule our kingdom the way we want to rule it, and once again, the narrative looked like it was getting hopeful, God's got a plan, he's going to fix everything, Israel's going to save the world, and they play the part of Adam. The same thing happens all over again. And that brings us towards the bottom of the decreation slide of the world. And we come now, of course, the exile is pretty much the last event of the Old Testament scriptures. There's a lot of prophets that say a lot of things. Nehemiah and Ezra do a lot of things to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But the bottom line is when we get to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, Israel is still in exile. Okay, they're in the land But they aren't living in the land. They're surviving in the land. They're being ruled by Gentiles, not by the son of David. So right there, that's a problem. No promises have been kept. Nothing's been fulfilled. Um, The temple, the building is rebuilt. But there is zero evidence in scripture that God ever chose that temple to be with his people. And as far as Israel is concerned, he is still gone. And they were waiting for the return of God. And that, of course, is why the announcement of Christmas was so beautiful. That long wait is over. Is basically what the angels said, and what uh, the uh, what John the Baptist said when he began to preach. The wait is over. God is on the move. He's coming. So Jesus enters the earth. While Israel is still dead, while they're still exiled, while this only hope of our story is just as bad as the rest of the world, he comes in. He does certain things. He seems to think he's in charge. And in fact, he acts like he's in charge. He heals people who have diseases. He restores body parts that are missing. He makes legs strong enough to walk that were never able to walk. Men that were born blind, this isn't just restoration of sight, but men that are born blind could see for the very first time. He's raising Lazarus from the dead. He is telling fishermen where the best place to fish is without him stepping in the water himself. Um, he just happens to know where the, all clusters are, and they are able to bring up so many fish, their boats beginning to sink. After they tried all night and got nothing, he's able to ride a donkey that has never been ridden before. Uh, with mastery inside of a boisterous, noisy crowd in which any animal of that sort was supposed to be spooked and not obey its rider. But Jesus just, we see no struggle. Just he rides it on in. He tells Peter, hey, you need tax money. The next fish you catch, there will be two coins in the mouth of that fish. He calms the storm with his voice. And the wind and the waves subsided immediately. Who is this guy? And that is the question everyone asks. Who follows him? Who is this guy? And if we connect the question with the larger story, it becomes very clear who he is. He's the guy who's doing what Adam was supposed to do in Genesis 1. He is having dominion over the earth. The dominion over the things that... Uh, creep on the ground the fish of the sea the birds of the heaven every living thing that moves on the earth here he comes and we see now what dominion meant he is the king of the creation because he is in obedience under the true king god the father jesus isn't on his autonomous rebellious i'm in command on my own terms mission like the rest of humanity he comes in complete obedience to the father to the point of death even death on the cross we're told in hebrews and that because of that he's able to do what humanity was always supposed to do we often say that he did miracles as god and then we scratch our heads and um well we we say he does his miracles because he's god and then we scratch our heads because we say but he's supposed to be a man we don't have to do the human part. Duh, God does miracles. But what about the human part? But I would actually suggest to you that when Jesus was doing miracles, he was more human than he was God. Because this is what humans were supposed to do from the beginning. In an unfallen, unrebellious manner. And here Jesus demonstrates the true Adam. Walking with dominion, bringing fruit everywhere he goes. Bringing life, bringing blessing. He was most like God when he died on the cross. Humans don't do that. Yes, humans die, but humans don't take the cross because they love people. We'll love people just before the cross, but no further. That was the love of God. Ironically, right? The thing we think is most divine is really most human. The thing we think was most human is really most divine. And that's the twister of Jesus. It's like, Whoa. This is who comes, and this is the life that we were meant to live and to see, and he shows it. But, of course, when he hangs on the cross in the crucifixion, you see right there, this is the bottom of decreation. The creation doesn't get decreated any more than when the creation kills its creator. This is when creation reaches its climax of rebellion. Rebellion. Something else we don't see often is that as Jesus is crucified, he is bringing Israel's exile to its fullest end. The cross is in so many ways the climax of everything. Here, the climax of human rebellion, the climax, the the exiles coming to an end, because didn't he say that... It, Destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. And Israel knows their temple was destroyed in the exile by the Babylonians. And God departed from them in the exile as they were scattered to the rest of the world. And what happens to Jesus on the cross? His body, which is the temple, is destroyed. It's dismantled as it was in the exile. And he himself is abandoned by the father. He says, where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus goes all the way to humanity's despair enters into their own exile israel's exile let alone ours from eden and he goes all the way to the point of abandonment from the father he takes it to its end he ends the exile narrative for us by dying and then and then the whole story shifts so miraculously everything that was building up to its full rebellion the whole decreation it can't get worse It turns in three days when Jesus comes out of the tomb and we realize, my goodness. Even at our worst, we couldn't shut down his promise to restore all things, make them beautiful and to bring blessing to the cursed earth. (laughs) I always imagined because in the simple way of hearing it, that Jesus came out of the tomb basically as his final trick. Ta-da! I really am God and you didn't believe me. Well, that does say that indeed, but we totally miss the larger story when we look at it just that. He comes out of the tomb not just as a final trick, but really in many ways as the first trick of many more to come. This is why I think it's so helpful to see your plot line the, the typical a V shape that right here, the death is the bottom and the resurrections where we now go up the upper leg of the V. The story begins to go up towards its restoration at the resurrection, because this isn't just Jesus was killed and oh, you couldn't actually kill me. I'm back. Um, this is he was killed and that body was done away with and he comes out of the tomb in a brand new body. And we're told throughout the New Testament that we will be resurrected, those who are in Jesus, that we will receive new bodies. And here's what is so hard for us to grasp is that that future resurrection and that future body we will have when he returns is the very resurrection and the very body that he demonstrated when he came out of the tomb on that Easter day. This is, in other words, bringing the future and dragging it all the way to the present and saying, hey, if you have any doubts about who's the author of this narrative and where it's going and how it's going to end, look what happens. Despite the darkest rebellion, I have emerged in my new body. The future is here now. And that's what has been so boggling for Christians forever and ever is that we have in one sense the new heavens and new earth have already begun. Because Jesus is in that body and he was on earth. And we were blown away and saying, whoa, a new world has literally dawned right here. The world is now being recreated the minute Jesus stepped out of that tomb. But we're also wrestling because as Pastor Mike shared with me, he came up here and cheated and looked at my notes early. He said, wait a minute. We're in the, it doesn't feel like we're in the recreation phase at all. In fact, we look around and we feel like the world's getting worse and you're not wrong. Rebellion is still going on its fast and furious pace. But what we're looking at is the scriptural narrative and the story it's telling. You heard the Christmas message, most of you. Um, Basically, it's offering us an alternative story. The alternative story is that there is a recreation that's happening for those who have eyes to see and are willing to surrender to the king. That in Jesus, we're following a resurrection, not death, not just coming back from the dead, because that would be quite frankly miserable, but a renewed life. That's what we follow. And so are we sure about this? Well, Jesus ascends after this. The missing son of David on the throne is now on the throne. He is the son of Abraham, right? We've learned that. So we know that uh, Paul will tell us in Galatians that all who join Jesus by faith become children of Abraham. So originally we thought this was an ethnic uh, promise, but it now becomes a faith promise that you are a son of Abraham and you're a daughter of Abraham, that we have joined this promise to bless the cursed earth we also know that we're in an exodus jesus spoke often illusions that what he's doing on earth is leading a new exodus um his baptism wasn't just you know the age-old question i get this all the time when i teach high school is why did jesus have to be baptized if he never sinned well he wasn't being baptized because he was a sinner he was being baptized because he was moses follow this What John the Baptist was doing was he was taking people to the Jordan River and on the east side of the Jordan River. That would be the wilderness side in your Exodus language. He was baptizing people. They come to him. They go through the water and then they go back into Israel, their their promised land. They go back into it with these people saying, we've turned from our rebellions, our sins. We are waiting for the king to arrive. He is really making Israel, he's calling them out to say, hey, remember your commission to be a nation of priests and to go for the nations and bring them to our God? Let's do this, people. Our king is returning very soon. Let's get our act together. We have not been very good at being God's people at all. We've been more like Adam than like Abraham. And so they go out to him and they start repenting. And so what they, ha- what they do is they're crossing from the wilderness into the promised land as if to say we're starting anew as the true people of God. Just as Moses led them to Jordan and then Joshua led them through the Jordan and into the promised land. It's starting over. Our exile was horrible. Our rebellion was wrong. But we have a new chance. John was preparing him from that. Jesus was baptized not to cleanse himself of some wrong he had done, but to identify himself as the leader of this new people movement. Follow me into Canaan and we will conquer. Not in a violent method. We saw his warfare against Satan as he healed people and diseases. And often you see a connection which boggles us Westerners, right? But you see this connection of disease and demons in the Gospels. And what we see is not just making old... Hurts, feel better. We see God's power pushing against Satan's kingdom. It's what we see happening in these miracles as the dominion Adam was supposed to have comes. Do you remember how Adam was told to work the garden and keep it? We covered that last week, how his first failure was not guarding or keeping the garden from outside darkness. The serpent slithered in. Shouldn't have happened. We know he's evil because of what he's saying. And Adam had the power to say, go away. And the serpent would have because of his dominion. But Adam doesn't do it. He never commands the creature. And so we see Jesus cleansing as he goes around. He's leading a new movement. And after his resurrection, people follow. We see the church launched in the book of Acts as they begin to follow this Moses, this Abraham, this son of David, this king. They begin to follow him. Uh, This Exodus movement has begun. And that's how often Paul will even talk about us being an Exodus people. In fact, he quotes that verse that was given to Israel that promised you're going to be a nation of priests for me. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter quotes that and applies it to the church. We are those people. We are in a wilderness. We're, we're, we're a recreation people living in a decreated world. In a world of rebellion, we're following the king. So yes, it's getting worse. But here, we're making our way toward the new promised land. The new heavens and the new earth. As you see on our chart, it ends there with the new creation. This is how the New Testament sees our movement. Jesus is our Moses. He's leading us. And we see ourselves as in between the times if you will we've left our old life of egypt and we're not yet at our new life in the promised land but we know it's coming and we know it's going to happen and so we are wrestling and we're trying to figure out our way there as we make the journey so we see in so many ways the recreation the church is doing now it's picking up what israel failed to do And then at the very end, so we obviously don't have too much to say, I guess, about recreation because we don't know everything that's going to still happen in the future. We don't know how much longer it's going to go. But we can jump ahead and know that at the end, you see the kink in the elbow and it plateaus back at the new creation just like the original creation. Everything restored and as fruitful and as promising as it was supposed to be. Heaven on earth, God reigning with man and working with him. We're ruling with him on the the earth. That's the new creation. That's where we're going. But what we don't always think about is the perfect mirror this creates. Um, the, 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 the original creation is lost because of the rebellion of Adam and his resulting exile. The new creation will be launched, it will be regained, well, largely in part because of Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection approved. New creation is going to happen. But the final step will be one more rebellion and exile because there are still sons of Adam and daughters of Eve who refuse to bow to the king. And when the king brings his kingdom to the earth. Something has to be done about that. Now. It isn't necessarily, at least according to Revelation, it isn't necessarily going to be some arbitrary, I'm here, oh, you guys aren't in church, so you're obviously going to be exiled. And is isn't like he's just going to, you know... Uh, there's going to be a final test. Revelation shows the nations rising in rebellion at the return of this king. And that that rebellion is what it will be exiled. That these people who have always sided with, with railing against the king, these people have to be removed if order is going to be established. If rebellion ruined the first creation, there cannot be a new creation without a removal of the rebellion. And that is what we see at the end. A final rebellion as the king returns, because of course, this world's not big enough for the two of us. The old Western saying, right? Two kings can't share this world. And so there's going to be a final push for the throne and Jesus will prevail. And those who aren't happy with that, well, they can find themselves outside as Adam and Eve were outside of Eden. And then we have the new creation. So that's Genesis 20. I'm sorry. Revelation 21. And we will end there. So Revelation 21, we get our glimpse at the final end. So Revelation 21, then I, John saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now this has been quite a discussion on what exactly he means. Uh, does he mean a brand new created out of scratch heaven and earth? Because the first was no more, it was passed away. In other words, Death Star, Star Wars season, right? Uh, the earth was destroyed with fire and it's gone. And so we recreate from scratch. Is that what new heavens and new earth means? Or does it mean renewed, refurbished, resurrected heaven and earth? This very one being transformed to be what it was supposed to be. Um, It's not necessarily a salvation issue. It's not a right or wrong issue. However, if uh, if scripture is supposed to be a narrative, the curtain goes up in Genesis, comes down in Revelation, then we would expect a resolve as all stories do. We would expect a resolve, not a it was a great battle. Satan ultimately ruined the first earth. So let's blow it up and start over. You win that one, but you're going to lose ultimately. Uh, we'll just start over. That is, that is a way of resolving, but it's also a way of conceding victory to the forces of chaos. Uh, again, you may have better reasons for believing the other way, but I would therefore prefer that we are going to have this earth will go forever and ever and ever because resurrection will happen to the creation itself as it will happen to us and as it had happened to Jesus. Just my personal view, which is backed up by many, many um, commentators. So you might wonder then, why does it say, for example, if we go to verse four, it will say this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And I grew up forever hearing the former things have passed away. So basically we won't remember this earth. Uh, I don't think that that's what it means, though. I think when it says the former things have passed away, it doesn't mean you're not going to remember anything from your past. There would be hardly anything to celebrate about the new if there wasn't an old. I think the point is that the former things have passed away. The former things isn't everything from the past. It's exactly what you just read. It's death, it's sorrow, it's crying, it's pain, it's the exile, it's the wickedness, it's the holocaust. It's, these things have passed away. There will be no more room for death in this new world. That's what has passed away. So um, John gets this vision. However, it's new. It's new. And he sees in verse three that the dwelling place of God is of man. It's Eden all over again. We see that this new Jerusalem is built with precious stones in verse 18. The wall had jasper, gold, glass. Uh, You go down to 19, you see uh, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, Uh, Always a mind-boggling picture as you look at it in your mind's eye. These multicolored gems as a foundation. Um, Up ahead, uh, prior in verse 16, you see that it's a cube, 12,000 stadia, uh, wide, deep, and high. Again, here's another area where we're going to have different interpretations. Some people reconfigure literal constructions. They, they have a golden cube sitting on the earth with these multicolored uh, layers of foundations. Um, that's possible. I wouldn't say that it would be wrong. But I, I think its point is that it's describing God's dwelling place the way it's always described it throughout Scripture. Uh, God's dwelling places always had precious gems and gold. And the high priest had the 12 stones. And those are the actual 12 stones you see here in the foundation. Further, we know when uh, the tabernacle and Solomon's temple were built, these were given the dimensions, that the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. It was as long as it was wide as it was high. And therefore, I think, I'm just guessing, that he's describing the New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies. This is God's dwelling place, and we'll live with him forever and ever. Uh, One other interesting comment is that the 12,000 stadia that makes the dimensions of the city, uh, one person has suggested in his commentary that that is roughly the size of the Roman Empire. And at the time of John's writing, that was the known world. So the point John might be making is the Holy of Holies will cover the entire world. The new Jerusalem will be the entire world because we're promised in Isaiah that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And last I checked, the waters cover 100% of the sea. And if, if that commentator is correct, then that would be extremely interesting what John is saying here. But then further, and here's the point, is that in chapter 22, you see the tree of life. And I think that that is just the most perfect full circle John can give us, is that one emblem of life from Eden, that is, that is there in the new heavens and new earth. And his point is, it's finished. We've come full circle. God did it. He brought humans back to the land that they rebelled against and were exiled from. He wins. And we will rule and reign with him on the earth we were promised through revelation. So our, our dominion and our under king status is restored. And what are we going to do with that? We don't know. Revelation is so mysteriously silent on some of this. But we do see that there will be kings of the earth walking to this excellent city. And it makes you wonder. Who are those kings and what are they doing? And what else is there in this world? So that's the new creation we have to look forward to. And I want us to be encouraged because we may not live to see the end. We might. But the encouragement is that your life, Paul famously says, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We see that God's plan in his narrative is that he's going to complete it. The story resolves rather climatically Not just by erasing the past and saying, let's just do it all over, but by fixing the past and everything about it. The whole circle of eternity is complete because God leaves nothing dead. He resurrects unless it wants to stay dead. He resurrects whatever wants to be resurrected, including Eden, including us. And that's the beautiful promise we have. My hope through all these three parts is that we would learn to see the scriptural narrative as our narrative, as our worldview, as the context in which we find our lives. And it's very easy to know where you fit in this. You're right here, the upside, the recreation side, and that that's why we're supposed to be living here. We're not extending the forces of decreation and darkness. But everywhere we go, if there's something that needs to be recreated, that's our mission. And right now, as God sent Adam out to make the world fruitful, multiply and work the garden and the plants to make the world beautiful. Remember how Jesus sent us out and said, now you, you do what Adam was to do. Go out into all the world and be fruitful and multiply, but multiply through other humans. By making disciples, you'll be multiplying and filling the earth. And that's what our emphasis is on. It's on humans. And where decreation is hurting humans, recreation is restoring them in the image of Christ. And so we know now a little bit better. Why does the church exist? Well, this is where we fit in the narrative. I think we get a better idea of how we're supposed to live. We're a resurrected people. Well, spiritually, soon to be physically. We're on this upside. And we have an optimistic outlook at what could be done if we let Jesus be king and ourselves, the under kings and his priests.